Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a best-selling author, politician, public intellectual and a former diplomat. He's been a member of the Indian Parliament since 2009. Before that, he had a long career as an international civil servant working for the United Nations. His book, B.R. Ambedkar, The Man Who Gave Hope to India's Dispossessed, tells the story of one of the country's most significant historical figures. Despite being born in the Dalit or so-called Untouchables caste, his intelligence and dedication led him to study in elite universities before becoming a major political figure. As a politician, he campaigned to overturn centuries of discrimination. Sashi Tharoor, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you, Georgina. Good to be with you and back at Monocle after a long absence. Now, this is your 24th book. It is indeed. And it's about a major political figure. And I have to say, you too are a major political figure. Oh, not in his league. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And your first book you wrote as a child. Well, not the one that was published. The first book that was published was actually my PhD thesis rehashed. I was in my early 20s. But I did scroll. I was an asthmatic child. And lying in bed, I rapidly exhausted the books around me. I didn't have any elder brothers or sisters. So it was my parents' books or my own. And then I thought, I may as well start writing some. So I I started writing very derivative fiction when I was young. Enid Blyton stories transmuted to India and Biggles adventures with an Anglo-Indian fighter pilot in World War II and that sort of stuff. And one of them was actually serialized in an Indian magazine, began shortly before my 11th birthday. So to that degree, yes, I can claim to have been published, but it never came out as a book or in book form. My first real published book was a book called Reasons of State about the way in which India's foreign policy was made. And then I went on to fiction for a while. Four of my next five were all fiction. And then finally settled down into um, writing nonfiction since. Mm. Now, you have been called the finest UN Secretary General we never had. And I'd like to look back at your career within the United Nations. When did you start there? Appallingly young, 1978, at the age of 22. Began with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees at a time when it was a very small organisation. handful of people, all of whom knew each other by their first names, with a sort of doctrine of non-operationalism. So we actually worked around the world with operational partners but didn't you know, get our own hands dirty very much. All of that changed dramatically soon after I joined because within months, the Vietnamese boat people crisis exploded. We had refugees flocking away, fleeing Vietnam and flocking into Southeast Asian neighboring countries. We had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan the following year with Afghan refugees flooding Pakistan and Afghanistan. We then had the crisis in the Horn of Africa, so refugees in, in Ethiopia and Somalia. We had the Nicaraguan crisis with the revolution against Somoza by the Sandinistas, and suddenly the world was exploding with refugee crises. I remember noting that the first four stories of the five top stories in the BBC World News in those days all mentioned UNHCR. And suddenly we were the flavor of the international system. So this tiny organization I was part of grew dramatically. I grew with it. I headed the office in Singapore at the peak of the boat people crisis. Amongst other things, ended up dealing with the first Polish refugees to jump ship when martial law was declared in Poland in 81. Dealt with other complicated and challenging cases. Got sent back to headquarters because of my successes in the field. That was always less fun. But 
had an interesting time there as well, including serving as the executive assistant to the deputy high commissioners, the number one of the number two, as it were, <laughs> which, which was also very educative. I left UNHCR after 11 challenging years and moved to peacekeeping at the end of the Cold War. And once again, tiny group of people. There were five of us civilians and three military in the entire peacekeeping office, which was small enough to be part of the Secretary General's office, Secretary General Perez Coyar in those days. And then again, that was the end of the Cold War. So once again, it exploded. I keep telling people, if you want your business to grow, hire me, because I, <laughs> you know, I, I saw it happen at UNHCR. I saw it happening in peacekeeping. I began, as I said, as one of five. By the time I left, we were something like 800 staff in the peacekeeping department. And we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 80,000 or perhaps even more than that troops around the world. Because again, at the end of the Cold War, crises erupted, small wars erupted, peacekeeping was the preferred solution and the UN came right into it. During my time I handled, I was in charge of the peacekeeping operations in the former Yugoslavia. And that was an extraordinary experience, hugely challenging, 18 hour days, year after year. And without even the satisfaction that one used to have with refugee work of actually solving the crises in a sort of measurable time frame, this war just kept going on, however hard you worked at trying to put out the fires. And finally, as you know, we sort of were elbowed aside, understandably, by, by NATO, which ended the war by military intervention, which the UN would never have done, could never have done. And at that time, uh, my then boss, Kofi Annan, became Secretary General of the UN, and I joined him in the Secretary General's office. I won't say as his right hand, but as one of his right fingers. <laughs> and we, we had a fascinating few years. I was with him as he helped redefine in many ways what people expected of the UN and of the Secretary General himself. Remarkable man. One of the greats in that office that has not always been occupied by great people. At the end of his time, I became an undersecretary general heading what was then the UN's largest department, the Department of Public Information. And having done all of this, having done humanitarian work, political work, peacekeeping work, the secretary general's office and management of you know, having to, to run and reform a very large and unwieldy department with offices around the world that I had to trim and consolidate. Having done all of that, some people thought that I would be the right man to try and head the entire organization. And the Indian government nominated me as their candidate to succeed Kofi in 2006. I did all right. There were seven candidates, every one of whom outranked me. There were former foreign ministers, serving president, the president of Latvia, Avika Friberga. There was a Jordanian prince. There was a man who went on subsequently to become the president of his country, Ashraf Ghani of Afghanistan. But out of that entire cohort, I managed to come second. But as Groucho Marx would say, no cigar. Ban Ki-moon <laughs> won. He graciously invited me to remain. I felt it wouldn't be right to do so. So there I was at the age of barely 51, leaving what had essentially begun as a lifelong career, having to reinvent myself thereafter. And I just want to interject because the popular wisdom is that the reason you didn't win is that the US didn't vote for you because they didn't want a competent man in the job. Well, then Ambassador John Bolton, in a very disloyal memoir, actually said so. In his memoir, he said his instructions were, we don't want a strong Secretary General. Some people tell me that line has been removed from subsequent editions of his book, but it was there in the original edition and created quite a hubbub, as you can imagine. <laughs> but um, the truth is that they did like Kofi Annan until 2003, when an unfortunate radio interview went terribly wrong for him. It was during the uh, Iraq war. And I still remember the journalist vividly. I was there present while the interview was going on, badgering him uh, to declare the war illegal. He kept saying, so the war was illegal. And Kofi said, look, I have said it was not in conformity with the charter. And I said, you mean it was illegal? And Kofi would say, I said it's not in conformity with the UN charter. 
Well, that means it was illegal. And Kofi had had a long day. He was tired. He said, yes, it was illegal. And that then became world news number one top headline and completely antagonized the Bush administration. Uh, with the result that Kofi had a couple of very, very rough years after that at the hands of his detractors in Washington and inspired by Washington. And the word went out within UN diplomatic circles, as I was told by friends, I had a number of friends in the US diplomatic service, that the message was no more Kofis. So that was what did me in. I mean, they, they didn't want, and I could understand this politically, a secretary general who might have the capacity, as Kofi did, to appeal above the heads of governments to a global public. Mm. And that clearly was a description that would have applied to me because I was the fellow being wheeled out to appear on all the shows where the UN was having a tough time, from BBC's Hard Talk a few times to Fox News, which was baiting the UN, where I was uh, very frequently a guest to defend the organization. So they knew I could indeed hold my own with the, the tougher elements of the world media, and they decided that was not what they were looking for. Mm. And they're entirely entitled to do that because um, the Security Council's decisions on electing a secretary general, and remember just 15 countries around the table, it's not the mass membership, their decisions are not really based on the excellence of your resume. They're making a political call, and, and we have to fully respect that. It is a political organisation of mm. member states, after all. I mean, all of those big world events that you were involved in, a refugee crisis, the Cold War, former Yugoslavia, all of these are still in crisis. Where or what should the UN be doing about this now? Well, the UN went through um, a number of transformations. In fact, when I joined the UN back in '78, I had said to my seniors in the organization that I was joining an organization that would one day run entire countries pending their transition to new governance, control a country and hold free elections, sanction the entire import-export trade of a substantially sized economy, set up an international criminal court to try former heads of state and government for crimes against their own people, and all sorts of things like that. People would have said to me since it was 1978, young man, what are you smoking? And yet in the 29-year span of my career, every one of these things happened. We ran Namibia and East Timor pending their transitions. We sanctioned the entire import-export trade of Iraq. We set up an international criminal court. So if you think about the things that the UN did in response to all of this, and of course we ran peacekeeping operations around the world and won a Nobel Prize for our pains. Having done all of that, I think one would have expected the UN to continue in that vein. But there was a definite slide back. From the time that I've left the organization, and therefore I'm observing it from outside, which obviously limits the first-hand knowledge from which I'm, I normally would speak about the UN in the past, I would say that they have been, A, much more hamstrung by the political differences that have erupted, particularly between the Russians and Chinese on the one hand and the Western permanent members on the other. They have certainly had some very challenging experiences, the Libyan intervention, which was deeply unpopular in many parts of the world, their failure to do anything about the American and British invasion of Iraq, which the UN had not authorized, their failure subsequently to agree on authorizing any other decisive action, whether in Syria, whether in Iraq, or anywhere else. And now, of course, the inevitable ineffectiveness of the UN on Ukraine. So I would say it's a bit tough. I mean, if you ask me what the UN could have done on Ukraine, I would say that uh, when the British and the Americans were shouting from every rooftop for seven weeks that war was imminent and that Putin was amassing his forces, I think what Kofi Annan would have done would have been to hop on a plane and get to Moscow and Kiev immediately on the first week of those seven weeks and just say, what's going on? How serious are you? 
if you have demands, what are they? What are your minimum irreducible conditions? Go back to the other capital and say, can we work this out? You know. And I think a formula could have been found. And I know Kofi would have done that because when the first time Clinton threatened to bomb Baghdad in 98, he got on a plane and flew and saw Saddam and I was with him. So I can tell you that I am aware of his instincts that the job of the Secretary General is indeed to fight for peace, however high the odds are against you. I think there, Kofi being from a small African country like Ghana, had a much freer hand in most of the globe's conflicts than perhaps Guterres as a former prime minister of a European country felt he could have when he was urged to consider such an option. I could talk about this forever, but I want to talk about, firstly, your political career, because you're an MP. Well, I I sort of spent about a year and a half in the private sector after leaving the UN in April of 2007. And I did well. Not only was I traveling comfortably in first class and all those wonderful things that we UN officials didn't do, but I was also making a a reasonable amount of money, including $50,000 a pop for every speech in the US through an agency. And so the result was that it was a very comfortable life, but I'd never been moved by the bottom line. I mean, I, I just wasn't, there wasn't me. From a very young age, I I had always wanted to make a difference, as it were, on issues that mattered more than actually profits or or comfort. And so I I was a bit restless then. I used to visit India to explore investment opportunities for the firm I was associated with. And in the process, out of sheer courtesy, but also in order to know what was going on, I would call on some of the political leaders whom I knew from my UN days. As the senior Indian at the UN, I was introduced to all of our prime ministers and foreign ministers every year when they came to the General Assembly. So I I had, as it were, relationships to maintain or to keep up with. When the 2009 elections were rolling around, I was pleasantly surprised to be asked by pretty much all the political tendencies of a national consequence there whether I'd be interested in contesting. I had been a critic of all of them for different reasons. I've been a critic of the the left for its economic policies. I've been a critic of the BJP for its communal bigotry against Muslims in particular. And I'd been critical of the Congress for its earlier statism and its command economy system. But of the in the context of that time, of 2009, I felt the Congress best represented the kind of liberal, secular values that I had always reflected in my own writing and thinking, and I'd been already fairly prolific as a writer, including in the Indian media space. And so I accepted the Congress's invitation. It was an interesting challenge. It turned out to be the hardest thing I'd ever done, and I've walked past minefields in Yugoslavia, but here there were daggers in my back from some members of my own party when I was unexpectedly given the ticket to contest from the capital of my home state, Kerala, capital being Tiruvananthapuram. And I didn't actually, um, I'd never lived there except on holidays. And it was quite an experience, particularly for somebody who'd lived abroad for so long. And and the the communists had held the seat in the two previous elections. I was the challenger. And they adopted the unwise tactic of simply saying, and this chap sits in air-conditioned offices in the West, speaks English. How on earth can he represent us in parliament? And, you know, the thing is that I was going around in local attire, which I was very comfortable wearing on my trips home, and I did so. I had picked up a very rudimentary Malayalam, but I was able to use it to talk to people adequately. And then I said, listen, you can see that I have the Malayalam to understand your hopes and fears. But more important to have the English and the Hindi to express them in Mm. Parliament in Delhi, which is what you really need. Speaking fluent Malayalam in Delhi is not going to get you very far. And that kind of negated their most powerful argument. I won by a landslide, a record majority, took the seat. I was a bigger challenge holding it in 2014 when Mr. Modi's rise and the BJP's rise took place because Tiruvananthapuram was demographically the single most favorable constituency to a Hindu 
Nationalist Party because whereas Kerala as a whole is only 53% Hindu, Trivandrum is 78% Hindu. So it's a, it's a huge mm. natural constituency to appeal to for the BJP. So I won with a somewhat narrower majority. And then in 2019, the third time, I had done enough good work locally that I again managed to win a, win in a landslide. So I'm finishing three terms of my 15th year as an MP. But 10 of those in opposition is not a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a job you do still and you do it alongside writing. This is your 24th book. And the man who gave hope to India's dispossessed. Tell us about that man. Dr. Ambedkar was a remarkable case because he was, you know, the son of a an army corporal or a sergeant, I suppose, by the time he retired, born in a, in a British army cantonment, the 11th of 14 children, uh, many of whom died in infancy, scrabbling in the dust of an insignificant country town. He wasn't allowed, despite his evident intelligence, to sit at a desk and a chair in the schoolroom. He had to sit on a gunny sack on the floor near the door, which he'd have to bring in with him and take away because nobody would touch a gunny sack that an untouchable was sitting on. He recalled being thrashed at school once because he was thirsty and he made the mistake of opening the tap outside, which the children were supposed to drink from. But as an untouchable, he shouldn't have touched the tap. He had to wait for someone to come and open it for him so he could drink, and he got beaten for that. So he went through all these terrible humiliations. We're talking about the 1890s, by the way, I should have clarified. I don't think that kind of thing happens very much these days. But well, partly you know, down to his work, though. Partly thanks to yeah. his work. He then excelled as a student and after a number of ups and downs, which have chronicled, my book has the great merit of being brief. So the story, <laughs> the story is um, told uh, in brief. But he um, managed to attract the attention of a Brahmin professor who was impressed with him, and who in turn recommended him to a progressive-minded Maharaja to give him a scholarship to study. Finished college, did well, and managed to get a scholarship to go off to um, the United States. He went to Colombia. As World War I was just beginning, the U.S., of course, is still neutral at the time, went there and just found himself. It took far more courses than the normal time load would have permitted, excelled, ended up with a Ph.D. from Columbia, then came to England and did his law. He's an inner temple lawyer. He um, also studied at the LSC, where, in fact, I'm speaking about him this afternoon at one o'clock. Uh, so he, he had a, an astonishingly impressive academic career. And this was at a time when many of his upper caste so-called betters would print BA, open brackets, F on their visiting cards. F stood for failed. But it was a <laughs> distinction nonetheless that they'd got that far. And here he was with a BA, an MA, a couple of PhDs and a law degree. Extraordinary man. And from an early age, he started articulating the views and aspirations of the what in those days were called the depressed classes, the, the untouchables was, was always known to be an unfortunate term. Subsequently, they've become known as the Dalits, but that word was not much in vogue in his lifetime. And he became an extremely effective advocate for them, represented the community in two roundtable conferences that the British convened here, became a significant voice. Won a few elections, and there weren't that many opportunities for Indians to contest, but he was initially nominated to the Bombay Provincial Legislature and subsequently won an election to it. During World War II, when the Congress Party was, of course, opposing the British um, and had largely gone to jail, Ambedkar served in the Viceroy's Executive Council as, as a member for Labour, brought in a number of progressive ideas for labour rights, including women labourers' rights and so on, did, did a remarkable job. And though he and the Congress Party were at odds about his supposed collaboration, he was invited by Nehru to be law minister in India's first cabinet when India found one independence. And Ambedkar, in that capacity, 
but also as an extraordinary legal mind, became sort of India's James Madison, the, the principal draftsman of the Constitution of India. Mm. And into that, he wrote the world's first and perhaps largest, most significant affirmative action program, which guarantees uh, the former untouchables and the aboriginals, the scheduled castes and tribes, not just equal opportunities, but guaranteed outcomes. That is, there are seats reserved for them in government jobs, in universities, in medical colleges, and even in parliament. Mm. There are 85 seats out of 543 in India today, where only people from those communities can contest. So all of that has helped transform the opportunities available to that community. And I would say that his impact has been considerable. It's it's striking that um, it is said there are probably more statues to Dr. Ambedkar in every village in India than there would be to any other Indian bar, perhaps Mahatma Gandhi. That's extraordinary. And even that is a debatable... uh, Yeah, it's not a hagiography, but you you clearly are impressed by this man. But there are some areas where I can see that you probably wouldn't agree. For instance, on religion. Now, I know that he, he converted, he became a Buddhist, but he really thought that Hinduism was a very bad thing. Now, you've written a book called Why I Am a Hindu. That's right. I mean, I, I do think that he was a bit uncharitable about it, but I don't blame him, and nor did Mahatma Gandhi blame him for their disagreements on this, because I, he went through the most horrendous iniquity. I mean, the Hinduism that I cherish is one preached by many other sages who disdained the idea of discriminating against people by birth. Adi Shankara, the original Shankaracharya, revived Hinduism a thousand years ago. Swami Vivekanand, who gave it a fresh boost in the late 19th century. Mahatma Gandhi himself. These are people who've absolutely fought against the notion of caste discrimination. And that's the Hinduism I profess, one of inclusion and accommodation and respect for difference, as well as respect for human worth. But um, Ambedkar, I'm afraid, got the worst of, of a lot of social discrimination. And he saw it being practiced in the most humiliating way, in ways that I'm pleased to say practically no longer exist Mm. uh, in India. There is still, I'm afraid, there's still caste discrimination, but nothing like the extremes that he endured and that I describe in my book. The incidents, the anecdotes in the book are all sourced from his own accounts of things he went through. But I will say that he did try for the longest time to bring about reform within Hinduism. And it was when he finally concluded this was impossible, that Hinduism, in his view, was at bottom, founded on the iniquitous principle of caste, mm. and that therefore the only way of dealing with the problem was to annihilate caste, which Hindu orthodoxy and indeed most mainstream Hindus were unwilling to do, that he then said, I was born a Hindu, but I will not die a Hindu. And then he explored every other faith and concluded that the one that was right, the most egalitarian, was Buddhism. He now, converted in the year he died, actually, in 1956. He has a, such an impressive list of things that he achieved, and, and you go through them in your book. He was actually, he had a quite a Marxist view of, of the economy. He felt it should be in control of the state. He was quite critical of Gandhi. He did a huge amount for feminism, birth control. I mean, when you think of the age that he lived in, that really is quite extraordinary. Exactly. And, of course, had a, had a part in writing the Constitution. When you look back at the extraordinary life of this man and everything that he achieved, and you look at India today under Modi, where would you put the country now? Well, I, I think that we, we've obviously done a lot of things to disappoint Ambedkar and some things that he might have been a little happier with. As a Democrat, I think he would find much lacking in the way in which our institutions are currently being operated. That is that a number of autonomous institutions have been eroded in their autonomy in recent years in ways that I think he would have disapproved of. He would certainly disapprove of the exaltation 
of the Prime Minister through a personality cult because he said uh, on two famous occasions, once he said in Parliament, of the Constituent Assembly as it was, that the Hindu habit of bhakti, of personalizing worship, is all right in religion if that's what you want, but it should never happen in politics because the deification of individual leaders is the worst possible thing you can do. And another cutting remark he made, he observed, he said, everywhere you go in India, you find statues of great men. But alongside the statues of great men, you see great wretchedness and poverty amongst the people, which is, you know, more instead of exalting great men, let's solve the wretchedness and poverty. So this business of, of personality cult would also not have sat well with him. He has written and said repeatedly that the worst fate that could befall India is what he called Hindu Raj, sort of the Hindu majority governing in the name of Hinduism. And that is unfortunately what the Modi government has done. I mean, Hindus are a majority of 80% of the population, but every government has sought to be completely inclusive of all communities and minorities. Whereas we have in the present government, not a single member of parliament of either house, uh, nor a single minister, obviously, uh, or any member of any legislature, uh, who is a Muslim. The ruling party for the first time in the 75-year history of independent India has no Muslims in its representational ranks. Now, there's been one recent change in local municipal elections in the state of Uttar Pradesh. There have been a few Muslim candidates elected on BJP tickets, and I'm hoping that marks a significant change, and we'll see a reflection of this, I hope, in the general elections due next year. But if not, that would really be something that uh, Ambedkar would have deplored. Mm. On affirmative action, there's no question that the Dalit community has made enormous strides. There's been a Dalit chief justice of India. There have been Dalit presidents, two of them, of the country. There have been um, Dalit individuals uh, who've made fortunes as, as multimillionaires and even even more. So, so there have been success stories in numbers that Ambedkar might have found difficult to conceive of in his time when he was very much of a handful of Dalits who, who had national prominence. But I would say that at the same time, the persistence of some atrocities, particularly in rural India, would have dismayed him. And he would still, I think, be out there fighting against them if he were still around. Mind you, I wrote the book 65 years after he passed away at the age of 65, which seemed a right inflection point. So it's always unfair to extrapolate from a person's writings in a particular historical context, writings and speeches, how he might have reacted 65 years later. Everyone's thinking evolves and his might have done too. But this is, I think, a fair conclusion from the formidable record of 18,000 pages of writing that he's left behind. And just to wrap up, if you were to look at India now and its global position in the world, particularly concerning soft power, I wonder how you would describe it? Yes, well, I actually, more than 20 years ago, wrote about the soft power of India as the attribute it needed to develop. With the consent of my friend Joseph Nye, the professor at Harvard who invented the concept, and he, he seemed to like what I had to say, and with his blessings, I went on a bit of a speaking spree encouraging India to think of uh, and focus on its own soft power rather than the conventional hard power indices of military might, nuclear weapons, and even a robust economy. And I would say for some time, that's exactly what India had. I mean, it was the world's fastest growing free market democracy, but it was also at the same time a country where, for example, in the elections of 2004, you had the elections won by a party led by a woman leader of Italian birth and Roman Catholic faith, who then made way for a Sikh to be sworn in as prime minister by a Muslim president in a country 80% Hindu. Now, that, that was India, and they weren't even trying to impress the world. This is simply the way we were. 
All of that, I think, enhanced India's soft power, plus, of course, everything from Bollywood to yoga to Ayurveda to Indian cuisine, Indian fashion. All of these things were the kinds of attributes that made India an attractive country for people around the world. Some of those things continue, obviously, but many of those things have now been um, overtaken in people's perceptions by some of the less attractive features of current Indian political life, assaults on journalists, assaults on women, uh, some of the erosions of our institutions, and the sort of um, the sense that we are no longer the all-inclusive, accommodative, tolerant, if that's the word you want, I would say accepting society that we always were, and have instead become a somewhat more majoritarian, Hindu chauvinist sort of land. And it startles Indians to be told the unpalatable truth that if you pick up newspapers in any part of the democratic world, in French, in German, in, in English, you will find a preponderance of unflattering articles about India, rather than, as they seem to imagine, great admiration for India's prowess and growth. There may be in the business pages some reference to, to India's growth. There may be some admiration for India's technology, the, the tech stack that has been created over the last decade. is truly impressive. All of this is exciting, and there will be references to it, but unfortunately outweighed by the perception that some of the qualities that were most admired in India around the world are no longer quite so pristine. But we are still an electoral democracy. I think we're going to see some, some fairly sort of bare-knuckle contests in the elections to come, and, and there will certainly be an alternative vision for India. My, my previous book in the UK was called The Struggle for India's Soul, and I do believe that that's the struggle we're all engaged in. Do we preserve a liberal, inclusive idea of India, or do we surrender to this kind of majoritarianism? Uh, the jury's still out, despite the fact that they've won two elections. I think India ultimately is, is much larger and more enduring than any government for however long it lasts can be. Sashi, thank you. Sashi Tharoor talking to me about his book, B.R. Ambedkar, which is published by Manchester University Press and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Helmi Pillai. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.